If you can grab a Bible and turn to the passage that we're going to look at today, it's, we're continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 8 and 9. And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. It's on page 974 in the Church Bibles, if you have a Church Bible. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. This week I've been thinking a little bit about taking initiative and what it means to take initiative. You know, how sometimes we find ourselves taking the initiative to do something and then at other times perhaps we react or we respond to someone else's initiative. You can probably think of examples of both of these things just from the, the last few days. So examples of times where either we've taken the initiative or we've responded to someone else taking the initiative. And even coming here this morning, perhaps, was either our own initiative or perhaps it was in response to someone else inviting us or even bringing us here. And Jesus seems to encourage initiative, I think. In his teaching, he said this, he said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So to my mind, these words seem to encourage initiative. But it goes beyond what Jesus taught. When a man with leprosy took the initiative to come and kneel before Jesus and say, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. Jesus healed him of his leprosy. And when a Roman centurion came to Jesus asking for help for his servant, who was paralyzed and suffering terribly at home, and said to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed, Jesus responded by doing exactly what had been asked. And Jesus seems to respond very positively to people taking the initiative. In the passage that we're looking at today, we have some some other people coming to Jesus with a question. And Jesus doesn't turn them away, saying that he doesn't have time to answer questions. No, Jesus responds to their question, and he gives them an answer. 
So taking the initiative with Jesus seems to be worth the effort. At least that's one conclusion that we can perhaps draw from what Matthew has written. And last week, we were looking at the moment, reading about the moment where Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Matthew, who was a tax collector, which is quite a contrast, I think, to the fishermen whom Jesus had previously called to follow him. I don't know about you, but when I think of fishermen... And fishing, it's what I'd consider to be good, honest work. Hard work, perhaps, very physical, but honest work. And I'm not sure that the same could be said of tax collecting at the time, or at least that's the impression we get, because it seems that Matthew then invited Jesus and his disciples to eat with him and other people, and that caused the Pharisees, the religious rule keepers, to wonder why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. So they asked the question, and Jesus responded to their question, didn't he? Even though perhaps behind the question there was a bit of disapproval of what Jesus was doing, he still gave them an answer to their question. And as you'll remember from last week, the answer is very interesting. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the ill And then he makes it very clear that he's not come to call righteous people, but sinners. And that makes me wonder how we see ourselves this morning. Which category would we put ourselves into? Are we righteous or are we sinners? Is Jesus calling us to follow him? Or are we completely healthy and in no need of a doctor at all? Well, in some senses, I I think it's both, both righteous and sinners. But in that situation, with the meal happening, Matthew, his friends, the other tax collectors, the disciples, the Pharisees, hearing those words that Jesus spoke, what would the disciples have thought? Were they also uncomfortable eating with tax collectors and sinners? If we'd been there, how would we have been feeling in their place? I can imagine that the disciples would have felt a bit on the spot because, in fact, the Pharisees had directed their question at Jesus' disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so probably they felt relief when it was Jesus who answered the question and provided an answer. But no sooner had Jesus handled that question than another one was being asked. And again, it's the disciples who are in the spotlight. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And again, there's probably something behind that question, isn't there? Of all the questions that you could possibly ask Jesus, given the opportunity, why would you be asking this question? Why would you be asking, why are we fasting and your disciples not fasting? And, and notice from the passage, at this point, it's not the Pharisees who are doing the asking, but it's John's disciples Matthew's already told us quite a bit about John, back in chapter 3. 
shall we remember that John was a preacher dressed strangely, a bit like Elijah the prophet. And he was baptizing people who came to him to confess their sins, baptizing them in the River Jordan. And then Jesus was also baptized by John, which caused him quite a lot of confusion. And then Matthew tells us that John was put in prison. So now John's disciples have come to Jesus with a question, why don't your disciples fast? So let's just think about that question for a moment. For a start, they're making a comparison, aren't they, between themselves and Jesus' disciples. We fast often. Your disciples don't fast. That's what they say. So what's behind that question? Are they wondering, is fasting a necessary thing to do? Or are they perhaps criticizing Jesus for not teaching his disciples to do the right thing? Or are they just bringing something to Jesus' attention because they find it confusing that they're fasting often and Jesus' disciples aren't? And even in their question, they're making a big assumption, aren't they? Their assumption is that Jesus' disciples don't fast. But if we think about it, how would they have known that? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already taught about fasting. He taught about fasting along with prayer and giving. And the essence of that teaching was what? Jesus said that these things should be done in secret. So the conclusion that John's disciples have reached, that Jesus' disciples are not fasting, is probably just they're not seeing it. But the big question is, how is Jesus going to answer their question? What's he going to say in response? And we could probably think, well, what would we say if we were faced with that, with that question? What possible answers might, might we come up with? Because it's the kind of question that we might find ourselves being asked by someone especially as people who come to church or people who are following Jesus. We're open to that question, aren't we? Why do you do this? Or why don't you do that? And I would say that Jesus' answer here is very wise. It's also surprising. And it's revealing And in one sense, it's a simple answer, and it's straightforward. But in another sense, it's not as understandable as perhaps we might have hoped for. Jesus answers the question in two parts. First of all, he talks about a bridegroom and a time for mourning. And then he talks about patches and garments and wine and wineskins. Now, I'm not sure that I've completely understood Jesus' answer, but it has been good to think about it, especially as the context is a question about fasting, which is something that I've been thinking about a bit recently because it's, it's Lent at the moment.
And perhaps it's worth, worth just noting that the question about fasting is being asked in the context of a meal. Jesus and his disciples are with Matthew and they're having a meal. And Jesus has just mentioned sacrifice and fasting is about giving up something. So we can start to understand perhaps why Jesus is talking, yeah, Jesus talking about sacrifice might have prompted a question about fasting, about giving up food. But what do we make of Jesus' reply? How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Does the answer that Jesus gives make sense to us? And what is he really saying? It's interesting that Jesus answers their question with a question. And that has to be because it's, it's not just simply about having answers. It's about engaging with what the question is. And it's about thinking for ourselves. And Jesus uses an example that would be familiar to them, just as it's familiar to us, just as Joel helped us to think about it. It's a wedding. It's a situation where there's a bridegroom and, of course, a bride. And a wedding is a time for celebration and not for mourning. You wouldn't mourn at a wedding. No one would mourn at a wedding. Neither would you fast. It's, it's just not right. That's not what you do at a wedding. But why is Jesus using this example? Remember the question. The question is, why are we fasting and your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus starts talking about a bridegroom. And it seems like Jesus is referring to himself as a bridegroom and his disciples as guests. So why is he doing that, we might wonder? Well, the place to start is probably to ask what would the people who were there have understood by Jesus talking about him being a bridegroom? And it's interesting that in John's Gospel, we have, we have an exchange between John the Baptist and his disciples when they asked him about Jesus. So this is going back in time. And John said, You yourselves can testify that I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and he is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is now mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. So in answering the question, Jesus is picking up on a description that John the Baptist has already used with his disciples to talk about Jesus. So it's John's disciples who come with the question, and Jesus uses the same terminology, the same example as John the Baptist has already used with them to describe who Jesus is. 
And then again, in his gospel, Matthew often refers to the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 62, verse 5, we have the following. As a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his wife, so will your God rejoice over you. So Jesus identifies himself as a bridegroom, just as God, speaking through Isaiah, identified himself as a bridegroom who would rejoice over his people. But Jesus also uses the opportunity to point to the future and a moment when the bridegroom would be taken from the guests and then there would be mourning. Easter is just over a month away and we will remember how Jesus was taken away from his disciples to go to the cross and they were left mourning his death until his resurrection three days later. So Jesus is already showing that he knows what is in store for him, what is going to happen and the effect that that's going to have on his followers. For the moment... His disciples have him with them, and that means joy and celebration as Jesus goes around teaching and healing and revealing who he really is. But the reality is that Jesus is this bridegroom. And the reality of Jesus being a bridegroom and a husband is further described and developed by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, where it's the church that is the bride. And that's, that's a mystery, Paul tells us. We're not going to understand everything about it. But it's still worth us thinking, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Getting married is something that most people look forward to, or hope for, or desire. Marriage is about commitment and promises and love as we heard earlier and Jesus' love for us all as his church is something that's worth pondering Paul writes Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So this is a vision that Jesus has for us. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we have a description of a wedding feast with Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his bride. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has, been made, herself, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, 
These are the true words of God. So clearly there's something to look forward to, something to engage with. But so far we've only managed to cover the first half of our passage. So very quickly, let me say that if Jesus had stopped here, I think that would have been enough of an explanation for me. But he goes on to talk about things that are a bit more unfamiliar to us and perhaps a bit more difficult to really understand. I don't know, I don't know when was the last time any of us sewed a patch onto an old garment <laughs> or if any of us have ever put wine into a wineskin. But these are, the, these are the everyday things of the people that Jesus is talking to. And I'm sure we can understand that it's a bad idea to patch a garment that's torn with unshrunken cloth or to put new wine into old wineskins. If we do, it's just going to be ruined. And all the people that Jesus was talking to understood that, that that's what he was saying. Just as you wouldn't have mourning at a wedding celebration and fasting... So you wouldn't do either of these things. But probably Jesus is saying more than just giving us three examples of things that we shouldn't do. And we could ask ourselves, what do these things represent? What does the patch represent, or the garment, or the wine, or the wineskins? But unlike in the parable of the sower that is just a little bit later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus doesn't give any explanation for what these things represent. So what do we do with this? In answer to the question, why are your disciples not fasting? Jesus is basically saying, it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right moment. Because Jesus talks about filling wineskins, probably that makes us think of the promise of the Holy Spirit, the good gift that the Father promises to those who ask him. And asking our Heavenly Father to fill us with his Holy Spirit is always a good prayer to pray. It's a prayer that we can pray for ourselves, It's a prayer that we can pray for other people. And it's a prayer that we can pray for us all together as a church community. And this brings us back to the idea that we started with of of taking initiative or responding to other people's initiatives. When it comes to us asking God for things, praying or doing things for God, whatever that might look like, it can be hard to tell sometimes whether we're taking the initiative or whether we're responding to God's initiative, whether those prompts are coming from the Holy Spirit living in us. But it's always good to respond when God takes the initiative. And when we take the initiative, it's good to ask if what we're doing is a response to God's leading by his Holy Spirit, 
whether that's praying for someone or helping someone or serving in some way or acting justly or being honest or answering difficult questions. As we recognize God's initiative in our daily lives, then our relationship with God becomes more dynamic, I think, and we become more thankful as a result. There's plenty more to think about in these few verses. At this particular time of the year, many of us will be thinking about fasting and what's the place of fasting. And I'll just give another little plug for the day conference next Saturday that Joel mentioned, where Louise will be giving a seminar on fasting. So if you're interested in finding out more, then I would encourage you to come along next Saturday for that. But I will hand back over to Joel. Thank you.